0: Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology and neurosurgery. Welcome to another episode of Neuropathways. I'm your host, Alex Raygrant, neurologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. In an effort to explore the latest advances in neurological practice, Today we're talking about developments in neuromodulation for the treatment of epilepsy. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Dilip Nair join us for today's conversation. Dr. Nair is section head of adult epilepsy in the Epilepsy Center in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Dilip, welcome to Neuropathways. Oh, Thank you, Alex. This is a fantastic opportunity to talk about
1: uh, something exciting in the field of epilepsy, neuromodulation even though it sounds new, we've had neuromodulatory therapies around for a while in epilepsy. The first neuromodulatory device was the vagus nerve stimulator. And then following that, we had a uh, approval for responsive neural stimulation. And I think today we're gonna be talking about deep brain stimulation for epilepsy. It's quite a evolution isn't it it sure is it sure is and it's actually an interesting avenue uh, of therapy very different from what we traditionally are used to in epilepsy
0: let's go back a little first though let me have you tell the audience a bit about yourself and sure you know your background and
1: yeah no so i started my practice in epilepsy in 2000 i trained here at the cleveland clinic both as a resident and fellow been uh, very active here in, in the clinic at some Ways to best treat our patients who have very difficult to control epilepsy, those of which we call medically refractory epilepsy. So, I deal with um, patients who come in from various different parts of the world, and we're very lucky to have a very large group here and um, great experience in both uh, diagnosis and therapy. Uh, And I also do a lot of clinical neurophysiology, both in the operating room um, as well as in the extra operative area where we do mapping various different brain networks involved in epilepsy as a part of uh, the surgical evaluation for epilepsy surgery
0: so maybe let's go back and and sort of talk a bit about how we define medically intractable epilepsy and you know what kind of population that affects
1: the current state of affairs the definition really is if you failed to appropriately chosen and taken anti-seizure medication. So those are very specific words. And in fact, the first part is appropriately chosen. And what that means is that you've been tried on a seizure medication that must have been appropriate for the type of epilepsy that you have had. And so there are various different anti-seizure medications, numerous actually. Um, we really have an explosion of uh, seizure medications come around in the mid-90s and then again uh, more recently. And so amongst them, there are some that are very selective and there are others that are more broad spectrum, I'd say. And so appropriately chosen means that the medication of, that was given to the patient was appropriate for the epilepsy type that they had. And then there's also appropriately taken, which means that the patient should have taken the medication. And sometimes it's hard to remember and some people have compliance issues remembering to take the medication. There also is a dose issue too. So was the dose that was prescribed appropriate for the likelihood of that being successful? And that's a very nuanced question. It can vary from patient to patient what that appropriate dose is. And then finally, there's a time interval too. So you must have tried the medication for appropriate amount of time. um, And that's kind of dependent upon what their baseline seizure frequency was to assess the efficacy, the effectiveness of the drug. So if you have a seizure frequency of once every day versus once every six months, you clearly understand that there's a period of time that's very different between those two patients to see whether that particular medication was successful or not. So there needs to be a certain amount of time. But once you failed then two appropriately chosen anti-seizure medications, and you failed, meaning your seizures have occurred, then that's really definition of what we consider now medically refractory. And the reason for that is that the likelihood that further anti-seizure medications will substantially reduce their seizures down to nil or down to close to zero is very low, probably in the realm of somewhere between 5 or 10% chance in the long term. So that's the real conundrum of all of this is that, you know, in order to be effective in treating patients, you need to reduce their seizures down to no morbid seizures so that l- seizures are not affecting their awareness for instance um, so that they would be impaired or if they're having convulsive seizures that they result in injury so it's a matter of trying to determine have we reduced the seizures down to that appropriate amount where they're able to function on a
0: day-to-day so I guess it's safe to say the days of just carrying on trying one medicine after the other for years have gone away and it's really Appropriate treatment, but then decision to go to something else, such as neurostimulation, seizure surgery, right? Yeah, you know
1: that's just a really beautifully worded question because you would think that that would be true, right? If you if we are at this if we're at this point in time where we're defining medical refractoriness, in which that would amount to about roughly thirty percent of our patients. So, the good news in all this is the vast majority of our patients do get controlled with seizure medications, but. There is a substantial number 30% that are not. And, and the sad news there is that there are still patients out there to this day that don't seek appropriate care or aren't referred to the appropriate medical center, level four uh, epilepsy center, where there can be some other options given to the person. So each person's different and it really requires an individualized approach. And that requires the skills of of a neurologist who's an expert in this field to understand the patient's epilepsy type, understand what are the uh, aspects of the data, what do they show, where is the epilepsy arising? It's really that, that thorough evaluation that's done to kind of make sure we have the diagnosis correct, make sure that the medications are all appropriate. And then finally, understanding if they do have epilepsy, where is it coming from? And is it a surgically amenable type of disease? Because in fact, at the end of the day still, if you are medically refractory, And we find that your epilepsy is arising from a non-eloquent area of the brain, for example, or an area of the brain that can be uh, approached surgically. It's clear we have two randomized controlled trials um, for surgery that show benefit over continued medication therapy. So that's very important. Um, I think that's a very, very important part of today's conversation is just to understand that. Because in fact, today... If you look at the number of epilepsy surgeries across the country, it's something like, if I remember correctly, it's something like 1,500. And uh, if you think of percentage of patients who have epilepsy, the prevalence of of epilepsy across the country, is about 2%. So that disease reflects a very large number of patients. And so it's clear that our medically refractory epilepsy patients are being underserved. And one of the messages that we want to make sure we get out is that there are other options available. And, and in order to get to those options, you need to be seen um, and, and talk to your physicians
0: about your options. So that kind of brings us back to one of those options, which would be the various forms of neuromodulation for epilepsy. And we know neuromodulation therapy in epilepsy is not new, mm-hmm. but there are new things in neuromodulation. Right, Could right. you talk through the yeah, yeah, evolution I, of that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So neuromodulations as I mentioned, started with the vagus nerve stimulation. That was some approved in the 1990s, uh, and that's what many might call. I'm going to use the word shotgun approach, it's not a criticism. It's just a point meaning that the target is outside the brain. It's the vagus nerve, and the the idea then is that by stimulating the vagus nerve in a fashion that is called open loop, where mostly it's stimulated by or originally I should say it was stimulated the stimulation was delivered in a sequenced manner, a scheduled manner. It was uh, typically 30 seconds off, five minutes off for an an example of therapy. And it was unrelated to whether a patient was having a seizure or not. That's why it's called open loop. That therapy was uh, the very first neuromodulatory therapy. the, The idea that you could alter the brain's physiology by applying an external electrical stimulation which was really fascinating, actually. So if you think about how the brain works through synaptic interactions and electrical interactions of various substrates in the brain, the core of cognition, the core of the ability for us to talk, to move, all of those rely on electrical signaling. And the notion that the pathophysiology, the mechanism of disease for epilepsy, which is an abnormal synchronization of brain activity, could be disrupted by applying an electrical stimulus was really kind of interesting. And it's not new, though. You know, We we think as soon as we've discovered something new, it's really just because we haven't looked into history long enough. In fact, way back in uh, ancient Greece, um, it was clear that they were using electrical stimulation to treat all things like gout, for instance. So the idea that electricity could affect disease is not a new issue, but applying it to epilepsy in a way uh, and looking at it in in studies uh, that resulted in the first approval of a device was the vagus nerve stimulation.
0: Dalip, let's talk about the second type of neurostimulation, responsive neurostimulation.
1: So responsive neurostimulation was the next step in the evolution of neuromodulation. And this device took on a, a little bit of a different approach. The notion there was to first understand the target of where this epilepsy was arising, the seizure onset zones. And these electrodes then would be placed in those, or close to those targets. So unlike vagus nerve stimulation, which the electrodes are completely outside the brain, the responsive neural stimulation device housed the stimulator completely within the cranial vault. So first of all, the the device itself is seated in the cranium. So a, a full thickness craniotomy is performed and a tray is inserted on which the device is seated and it's flush with the skull. And uh, two electrodes, either a depth or a subdural strip or a combination of those two, are connected to the device. And these electrodes are placed near the location or locations. This device is approved for one or two seizure foci. So one of the phenomenal things about this device is that it can continuously sense and record what it's sensing in the sense that it can tell when a detection has occurred, which means a time in which the seizure is thought to be seen. And that's all programmed by the provider. So those patterns are detected and, and stored in terms of saying our detection was given at this moment and uh, stimulation was also delivered. And this is performed over many, many years in a, in a very naturalistic setting. Patients are on their seizure medications. They go about their daily life. And seizures are being detected and stimulated with very brief pulses. Uh, and so that's responsive neural stimulation. And then that was different than the vagus nerve. It's closing the loop. It's sensing and stimulating only the times where a seizure focus is thought to be uh, generated. Uh, I should say that the most more recent versions of the vagus nerve stimulator do record heart rate. So in a sense, they, they have an ability to have a closed loop feature. So when heart rate detections are seen or a tachycardia is seen, it presumes that there's a seizure going on and extra stimulations are given during that time. But really, a real sort of detection and stimulation therapy is really the responsive neural stimulation um, that we
0: had approved in 2013. So just recently, deep brain stimulation was approved for epilepsy. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The deep brain stimulation trials began in 2003. The first implant was sometime around there. And the the, uh, SANTE trial, which is the uh, trial that looked at the Stimulation of the Anterior Nucleus for Treatment of Epilepsy, was published in 2010. And it took eight years (laughs) before the device got approved. And between that time, the device was available in Europe and was available in Canada and Australia. And eventually, you're right, it, it just recently got approved last year. April of 2018 and then made available to us in December. So we're very excited to have this third neuromodulatory therapy now. This is very different than both uh, types of therapies we've already talked about. Unlike the responsive neural stimulation, this is open loop, very similar to the vagus nerve stimulator but unlike the vagus nerve stimulator and responsive neural stimulation there's a single target that's in the brain and that is the anterior nucleus of the thalamus which is the thalamus is a very large relatively large structure deep in the brain and it has many subnuclei of which the anterior nucleus is one of the subnuclei Now, you may ask me why the anterior nucleus of the thalamus, of all places, right, for epilepsy? Why is that? (laughs) So, the reason for that target was because it is a part of a circuit called the Pape circuit. And the Pape circuit was well established in neurocognition as the memory circuit, the cognitive circuit, the emotional circuit, but also the limbic circuit for epilepsy. And so it was originally proposed that the anterior nucleus of thalamus would be an interesting structure to target for stimulation for limbic epilepsy. And so that was kind of the purpose for, for using that target. Since that time, there have been various other types of epilepsies other than just limbic epilepsies that, that have been studied for, for this particular uh,
0: type of stimulation. So it sounds like we've got all sorts of ways to approach the medically refractory epilepsy patient. How do you guys figure out what to do next? Yeah, you know, that goes
1: back to the point that, as with a lot of medicine, it's really being personalized to the patient. So you can talk about them in, in forms of types of epilepsies, various different groups. But really, it's it's important to understand that a person is an individual. And there are a lot of different unique aspects to a patient and a lot of different uh, issues that we have to address uh, that come into play. So we think about it in a variety of different ways. So it's complicated. That's how I wanted to make that big sort of introduction to say it's all complicated. You got to be, you (laughs) know, I have to train for that. That's an easy way to come out of that. But if we wanted to think about this in kind of a very sort of, um, you know, the forest view of this problem, the first aspect is first to define that a patient has medically refractory epilepsy. That begins with a video EG evaluation, begins with an MRI scan, and from there, we begin to ask various questions. What type of epilepsy is this? Where is it coming from? And if it's generalized, if it's a genetic epilepsy, there really, it becomes more of a smaller, a group of options available, if it's genetic and generalized, unfortunately. Then there are some people who are thinking about various roles of, of neuromodulation. Vagus neurostimulation is maybe still an option there, but uh, there are people who are thinking about very specific tar- various targets uh, that have not yet been approved, I should say. Um, for that genetic generalized group. And same, same goes for the multifocal, sort of symptomatic generalized in the old, old term. Uh, there are not a lot of neuromodulatory options yet available. So we, we have to think about then that we've made the diagnosis of epilepsy that it's medically refractory and then it's not one of these various subtypes. It's a focal epilepsy. Then the question becomes, is there an MRI lesion And does the MRI lesion correspond nicely to all the other data that we have, including history, very importantly. But all the sophisticated tests also uh, are involved there in that discussion. And uh, these data sets are all collated for that particular patient. And we ask the question, are we confident about where the epilepsy is? Is there risks to undergoing surgery or not? And that specific question, is there overlap of eloquent function? And if there is, how can we resolve that? Is there a way to resolve that? If there's no MRI lesion, what other testing do we need to do? Do we need to put electrodes in the brain? Do we need to do other special studies like magnetoencephalography, ictal SPECT? PET scans are almost uh, uniformly performed, but uh, do we need to do other advanced image processing uh, techniques that we have here at the clinic? 7T, voxel-based morphometry, et cetera. The point is that the discussion is held at a very personal level, and we have a committee. It's not just me. You know, if it's my patient, it's not me. It's me plus all of the other epileptologists all in, their, in our group. We have, you know, a numerous number of epileptologists. It always astounds me how many people we have in our group. Uh, we have, you know, I think 12, I want to say, people who just see adult epilepsy. We have five who are pediatrics. and. The nice thing about patient management conferences is that we all sit together in the same room, along with the surgeon, along with the imaging person, and we address these points. And if surgery is an option, and, and in the sense that it's safe, and you know, and it, and these patients are uh, willing to pursue that, it is still the first option being given to the patient. There are some patients, though, that surgery is not an option. Either there's an overlap, or there's more than one location. We don't know where the location is. And we have to think about other options. We need to do something for these patients. We can't just give up. And so neuromodulation comes up in those uh, periods of time. One thing I wanna make sure I talk about is the effect of neuromodulation. It's not something that is immediate. The expectation is that we don't start the stimulation of any of these types, actually, and that it works immediately. It takes years sometimes. It takes years to to develop uh, a benefit and so there's a little bit of uh, an expectation walking in that that's what we're going to be looking for, and that's what we're going to try strive for. I think one of the leading questions in the neuromodulatory field is how can we speed up this efficacy? You know, unlike surgery where it works like that right after the surgery is over, you pretty much know whether you're successful or not. Um, That doesn't happen with neuromodulatory therapy. And so, you know, unfortunately, there's about 30, 50 to 30% of patients who even after epilepsy surgery are still having seizures. And so it's nice to know that these
0: options are available even in those situations. So it sounds like it's a pretty exciting time with lots of potential, but very individualized at the individual patient level. I I think you you hit it on the head.
1: Um, It is exciting. I I tell my residents and fellows to be an epileptologist today, you have to have a lot of different hats. You have to be a good clinician. You have to be a good clinical neurophysiologist. You have to be a good anatomist. You have to know pathways, you have to know networks. And it is exciting. And so you can't do everything, you need a team. Uh, And in our group, we have uh, biomedical uh, engineers who are embedded with us. We have nurse practitioners who are extraordinarily important in the care of our patients. And the benefit of having an epilepsy center like ours, and there are others out there, is that you have a team of people all caring about the patient, the patient, in terms of their disease, understanding them as best as we can, addressing their needs, both from a seizure standpoint, but also understanding there's other aspects to their life than just epilepsy and having trying our hardest to address those
0: too. Well, that sounds like a good place for us to finish our conversation, leap. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Alex. This concludes this episode of our Neuropathways podcast. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast. Subscribe to the Neuro Pathways podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website, consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro. Or follow us on Twitter at Cle Clinic MD, all one word. That's at CLE Clinic MD on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.